All right, well, we're in a series entitled Making Bank. No one can serve two masters. And in this series, we're talking about how it is that Christians live to glorify God and to serve King Jesus with all of life's treasures. And we're looking at three relationships specifically. Two weeks ago, we started by looking at money and identity. How is it that we wrongly root our identity in money instead of in Jesus? Last week, I looked at money and giving. How is it that we honor Jesus and serve his kingdom mission through the treasure of our life by giving? And then next week, we'll look at money and mission. How is it that God uses the resources of the local church, his people, to resource his mission in the world? But today is actually an application of last week's sermon. So if you weren't with us last week or if you've managed to be blessed by forgetting all of last week's sermon, whatever the case may be, I want to encourage you to make sure that you go back and read what we said last week. You can listen to the audio, see the video. And the reason I say that is this, because today is the fruit of what started last week. And you'll understand that more in just a moment. And I'll explain more in just a moment. As we look at money and giving, we talked about how we're looking to fulfill the wisdom of Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 that says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your crop. Then it says your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. I also said last week regarding giving that failing to plan our giving is a plan to fail in our obedience. And today I just want to unpack a plan for giving that I teach and that I encourage every Christian to embrace and to practice. And I want you to know this comes from a heart of love as a pastor. It comes from a a place of grace, as I'll argue, uh, in the way that I present it. But I want to complete last week's message by exhorting each person as to why we should begin our giving in tithing. Tithing, I believe, is the greatest practice and practical argument for faithful stewardship in the Christian life. And if if you're predisposed to reject this message, I only ask that you consider it and then you can do as you want with it. And I hope and pray ultimately that it's at least an encouragement that you learn something and that it blesses you today. I want you to see that tithing, big idea to walk away with today, tithing provides an effective strategy for the discipline of giving that produces Christian growth and maturity. Let me clarify, first of all, what the word tithe means. It's a simple word. It means tenth. It's one-tenth, and it is not only one-tenth, but it's that first portion that represents the whole of what it is given from. God ordains the first portion as distinctively his to represent that we are his, that all we have is from him, and that all he provides to us is sufficient for all of the needs of this life. And so the way I'm going to run at this today is, first of all, to remind you that I provided nine principles of giving last week that are rooted in grace. Right out of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and Philippians chapter 4. But I want to draw from those and dial it in to a practical application. And I want to argue today for three reasons every Christian should practice the discipline of giving through tithing. And I offer this, as I'll say a couple of times, not as a command, 
but as a strategy to apply the whole counsel of God's word to us. So let's go immediately to it and dive in. The first reason I'm going to give you today is what I call a biblically and theologically faithful argument. And it's simply this. Tithe is important because it represents and honors King Jesus. Tithing is important because it represents and honors King Jesus. I I want to show you where it is that tithe appears in the scriptures. Because so often people go, well, Christians don't have to tithe because tithe is a law. But actually tithe is not a law. Tithing supersedes the law. Go with me to Genesis chapter 14. I want to show this to you in the scriptures briefly. And this is where we'll start in Genesis, and we'll be back in the New Testament pretty quickly. Genesis chapter 14, we find Abraham who has gone in to rescue Lot. He took 318 trained men, and he went to rescue Lot from King Keterlaomer, the king of Elam. And other kings who had captured Lot. Lot was a rich man. These kings captured him to take his riches from him. But Abram went on a reconnaissance mission. He rescued Lot and he pilfered the kings who had kidnapped Lot and stolen from him. And so he had all the spoils of what he had taken from those kings. And the Bible tells us on his return, he runs into a man named Melchizedek. We don't know where Melchizedek came from. And quite honestly, we don't know where he went. But we we do know that Melchizedek was not just a man. He was the king of Salem, a word that means peace. And he was a priest of of the God Most High. And he appears... In meeting Abraham, and he extends a blessing to Abraham, and in return, Abraham gives him a tenth of all that he had. Look at verse uh, 15, 19, excuse me, of Genesis 14. And he blessed him and said, This is Melchizedek speaking to Abraham, or Abram. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So this man who is a priest of God says, Abram, you're a blessed man, and you're blessed, obviously, because God has been the blesser of you. And what does Abraham do? Abraham in his heart agrees and he says, or he rather doesn't speak, he acts. He gave him a tenth of everything, verse 20 says. If we flip over to chapter 28, we find a man by the name of Jacob. Here's the defining characteristic of Jacob's life. He was a wrestler. Jacob didn't do anything that he didn't get wrestled to the ground in submission to do. He was just a rebellious heart from the beginning, and he learned every lesson he learned the hard way, okay? I know there's at least one person in the room who can relate, but we'll not get tied up there. But what happens is Jacob lays his head down on a rock, and he falls into a deep sleep, and he has a dream. And in this dream, it's so striking to it. It's one of those dreams that are so real that when he wakes up, it literally alters the path of his life. And it says that he awakes from his dream with a great sense of awe for God and all of his promises and his provisions. He's just overwhelmed. And coming out of that dream, he takes the rock that his head was laid on during that dream and he sets it up as a pillar and he makes an offering to the Lord of a 
one-tenth of all that he has because of the awesomeness of God revealed through his promises and his provisions. And he renames that place Bethel. Now, when we move forward through the books of the law, so Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we begin to see that the tithe is, in fact, brought into the law of God. In Leviticus 27, it tells us what we are to tithe. In Deuteronomy 14, it tells how to tithe. And that's pretty much how it gets included into the law. It's written in as the practice for the people of God to engage in. Now we'll fast forward to the New Testament, and I won't have you turn there, but in Matthew chapter 23 and Luke chapter 18, we see the two times that Jesus mentions tithing in the New Testament. And you know, if Jesus said it, it's probably pretty important for people who claim his name. Is that not right? Jesus mentions tithings two times. In both instances, he is confronting the Pharisees to warn them about the legalistic abuse of tithing. And in Luke chapter 18, he tells a parable of one who trusted in themselves, who quoted their prayers, and publicly demonstrated their giving and celebrated their tithing. That they tied not only in their money, but even the spices of their rack. There wasn't anything that God didn't have a tenth of. But Jesus condemned them because their heart was still far from God. And he showed the contrast between the Pharisees, who were a hardened, self-righteous people, and humble, repentant sinners. Here's the two things we learn from Jesus' teachings on tithing in the New Testament. Number one, tithe is never a spiritual cure for legalism in your life. Tithe holds as much temptation for you to trust your action over God's grace as any other. But the other thing Jesus doesn't do is he doesn't dismiss the tithe. He doesn't even refute it. Rather, Jesus affirms tithing and he emphasizes above it the weightier matters of the law. Little things like love, justice for all, mercy. These are the things that Jesus says are of greater value in our life. You see, friends, Tithing begins as and is intended throughout the scripture to be an expression of worship and gratitude for all of God's provision and blessing. But, but tithing can become a legalism where people begin to trust their action more than God, just like any discipline or any practice of our relating to God. And so in order for us to understand how it is that Christians should respond to the Old Testament and the New Testament teaching in order to form our practice, in other words, we want to look at the whole counsel of God to understand how it is we can obey God in our daily life. Theologian Andreas Kostenberger reminds us that Jesus is our center. Here's what he says. All of the Old Testament is binding on Christians in some manner. This needs, though, to be balanced with the fact that the Old Testament's real and abiding authority must be understood through the person and teaching of him to whom it points and who so richly fulfills it. Basically, he's saying this, Jesus is the center of all Christianity. Jesus is the center of our understanding of all of his word and of our obedience in living it out. 
I'll repeat what I've already said. The New Testament does not command tithing, neither in the way the Old Testament does through the law, nor in the way that it makes other explicit commands like love your neighbor or go and make disciples. It's not an explicit imperative command in the same way. However, the New Testament does connect the tithe to Jesus in the same way the Old Testament connects the tithe to Melchizedek. That's the whole point of this passage in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 15. I want to read this for us. I'm going to read 15 through 22, and he says this. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. He's talking about Jesus and Melchizedek and that relationship. Who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Listen, friends, this passage of Scripture illustrates a hermeneutical principle called typology. Now, hermeneutical or hermeneutic is just a big $5 theological word that simply means how we understand the word that God has given to us. So when you talk about hermeneutics, you talk about interpreting scripture and understanding it for our life. And typology is where we look at the Old Testament characters in order to understand, albeit in a lesser way, the greater fullness of Jesus and his role in our life. Theologian A.W. Pink helps us, and here's what he says. Only God has the right to say how much of our income shall be set aside and set apart unto him. Because God is the one who orders and ordains how it is that he is honored in worship. A.W. Pink goes on to explain how it is that the tithe actually transfers from the Old Testament teaching into the New Testament Christian's life through this passage in Hebrews. Now, I don't typically use long quotes, but I can't say it better than this. And so I'm going to put a quote on and read it for us here. This is from A.W. Pink. Here's what he says. Not only was Melchizedek there a type of Christ, in other words, that pointed us to Jesus, but Abraham was also a typical character, a representative character, seen there as a father of the faithful. And we find he acknowledged the priesthood of Melchizedek by giving him a tenth of the spoils, which the Lord had enabled him to secure in vanquishing those kings. And as that is referred to in Hebrews, where the priesthood of Christ and our blessings form the relations to it and our obligation to it are set forth. The fact that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, as mentioned there, indicates that as Abraham is father of the faithful, so he left an example for us, his children, to follow in rendering tithes unto him of whom Melchizedek was the type. That would be Jesus. 
And the beautiful thing in connect with this scripture is that the last time the tithe is mentioned in the Bible, here in Hebrews 7, it links the tithe directly with Christ himself. Listen, friends, here's the resounding message you should always hear and experience from Life Point. Jesus is better. We preach it, we teach it, we sing it, we talk about it, we live it, we worship that Jesus is better. Tithing is not a law, though it was included in the law. Rather, it superseded the law by something wholly other, by an act of worship that guides us to honor God with material things of this world in a way that God has ordained to be honored through the material aspects of this world. You see, it's not that tithe is better than the law, but rather that it's not bound only by the law. A theologically faithful argument commends us to tithe as a foundation for our giving because it represents and honors Jesus. And friends, Jesus is the center. He is not only better, he is far greater than all others. He is incomparable, he is unrivaled, he is supreme in every way. He is worthy of all honor, of all glory, and of all praise, even and especially through life's treasure. You see, tithing honors Jesus as the great high priest from the life of one who lives as a steward of God's glory. Friends, the point of this first reason that I offer you today is this. If you hold that Jesus is the greater prophet than Moses or Elijah, If you hold that he is the greater king than King David was, that he is a far greater priest than Levi was, that his wisdom is far greater, that his riches far exceed that of King Solomon, and that he is far greater than anyone from the Old Testament, how then can you not honor him in a way that far exceeds the honor that any of these people received? with their life. The second reason, not only do we begin with a biblical and theological argument, but I want to turn now to a spiritual argument that'll produce growth and maturity in the life of a Christ follower. The second argument is this, that tithe is valuable because it provides one means of practicing all the principles of giving that are rooted in grace. This is why I need you to hear last week's sermon or at least read the manuscript and blow through it so you'll know what these nine principles are. But when you practice the tithe, it provides value for you because you practice the principles of the New Testament how we root our giving in grace. There's a lot of debate over the tithes today. I'm not surprised by any of it, nor am I uh, dismissed from any of it. Most of it revolves simply around whether tithe is applicable for Christians today. And there are countless voices out there that immediately remove it and dismiss it. What you will not find is a respectable scholar who argues or would dare suggest that the amount or percentage of the New Testament Christian and their giving should be in any way reduced from that that was required in the Old Testament. The greatest danger of tithe, friends, as with any other spiritual practice, 
is that the tither comes to believe that in some way, form, or manner, he elevates his standing before God simply because of the practice. Jesus fulfilled the law for us. That means simply this, in every way, that there is nothing that we could do, can do, or ever will do that will make us more loved or accepted by God. And that includes your money and how much you give. God will not be bought. He cannot be bought. He doesn't need our money. What he needs is for our money not to own our heart. And that's what he warns us of in Matthew 6. For a Christ follower who lives by grace through faith, the law should be fulfilled not by legalistic exactness, but by a surpassing measure of grace in all matters. Do Christians have to give 10%? No, absolutely not. For the New Testament teaches and provides one example after the other that when people gave in the name of Jesus, it was anywhere from 50 to 100%. And not a one was ever disappointed with the return God gave for their gift. Whatever we choose to give, we should be guided by the principles of grace. We can be sure of this. Our giving always reflects our relationship with God. Here's the thrust of this second reason and what I would call the value of tithing. When you practice tithing in one act, simultaneously, you complete seven of the nine New Testament principles from giving for grace. In one act, here they are. Tithing is systematic. Tithing is proportional. Tithing is intentional. Tithing is motivated by love, equality, and blessing. And, and listen, if you're not motivated by those things, then, then tithing will become for you a legalism that, that actually does more damage than good for you. It's not that tithing is the problem, but that your heart is tethered to something other than God. Tithing is voluntary, and tithing prepares you to excel in the grace of giving as we're commanded to do, because you're already acting on God's promise. You see, the only two principles that it doesn't immediately fulfill are simply making you a cheerful giver. You can actually give and begrudge God for it. You can. It's possible. You can give and be upset with God either about the gift you had to give or the fact that you have to give it all. So it can't make you cheerful and it can't make you sacrificially generous, but you will not get to either of those principles without practicing the others first. And so tithing provides a pathway for you to learn joy in giving and for you to move to sacrificial generosity. It is sacrificial for many, but when it's practiced as a discipline, tithe can guide the life. It cultivates and it grows joy and cheerfulness in your life. Listen, uh, tithing, I didn't say it was easy. 
I didn't say that when you write that check or you, however we transfer uh, our treasure today through whatever means that it will be, oh, it's just like there's plenty. You don't have to worry about it now. No, I don't say you don't consider the bills of life and the demands that are coming and what is present. But what you do is you take all of these things and you go, Lord, I want to honor you because I know none of these are outside of your scope of power or authority. And I'm going to honor you first and you'll take care of the rest. See, when you begin with tithing as a discipline, you put your treasure with the person you're, uh, that you trust your heart needs to be with for life, and that's Jesus. And this is in obedience to his teachings. Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters. You'll either serve the one, or excuse me, love the one, or you'll serve the others. He says this, the one you love most will be served by the other. And the two choices are money and God. Tithing as a discipline proves most valuable as it cultivates God's grace for all areas of life. That's my spiritual argument. My third is what I would call a radically practical argument. And here it is. Tithe is helpful and beneficial because it works. Now, usually this is where we begin, right? The pragmatic, the practical. If it works, I'm going to do it. This is the absolute worst place for a Christian to begin anything. The place where Christians begin is with the word. Is with the word. Not just with what works. Because sometimes we implement what works when it's not the way that God's word has instructed us. And sometimes we read God's word and we go, I don't know if that will work. I don't know if it's practical or pragmatic. Therefore, I need to find another way. But listen, friends, when we trust God to follow his way, we find that God works in ways we don't see or know. And so I admit this third reason is a pragmatic rationale. It's the weakest of all the arguments, but it's typically the most commonly used for all of life. That doesn't mean that it is without merit. It does mean we should never only do something because it works. But when we do, listen to me, when we do what God's word says, even when we don't see how it could work or will work, by faith, we always get to see how God works. And that's the value of this practical argument. It's funny, is it not, how things work even when so many think otherwise, when we follow God's word? You know, friends, when you don't see how the instruction of God's word is going to work, you can know this in your life, that when you follow by faith, you can trust what you will see is how it is that God works in your life. And you'll get to see the revelation of God come to fruition in your life. Tithing is helpful and beneficial because it works when you work it because God is working in you. We identified the New Testament's two promises last week. Philippians 4.19 says this, And my God shall supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. You say, well, why wouldn't God do that whether I was tithing or not or whether I was giving to him to honor him or not? Because he wouldn't be your God. And Paul says, and my God. You see, if you're not worshiping God as God, you're not going to let him do for you what you're trusting him for your needs in your life.
2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 and 9 said this. I'm, I'm going to warn you. These first four words are some of the most encouraging in all of Scripture. And God is able. You know, that's really the thrust of what we're talking about in this series. Is God able to do what he's promised to do? Abraham found that he was able. Not only able, but willing and wanting and waiting. You'll find the same when you believe that God is able. And listen to this next part of it. When God talks about the practical area of finances in life, he doesn't go to economic principles. He goes to principles of what? Grace. Grace. God is able to make all grace abound to you. You see, friends, the most fundamental, essential, practical provisions of your life do not come from the practical areas of this world. They come from the grace of God. That's what we believe as Christians and as stewards. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. You see, Paul tells us this. God's grace always works for you when you work by faith in God's grace. Now, let me clarify something for you. This is not the heart of the gospel. This is the application of the gospel. For the heart of the gospel is God helps those who help themselves. Absolutely not. God helps those who cannot help themselves. That's the gospel. God does for us, and in what he has done for us, he's completed it on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, friends. You need to stop your striving, and you need to cease in your accomplishment and your achieving trying to impress God. God already loves and accepts you. That's his grace. But when his grace fills our life and consumes our heart, then we begin to see that the life that he has lived within us and brought us, made us alive together with Christ in us, begins to work in us. And the work that he's doing in us begins to work out through us. That's why Paul says, continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Ephesians 2. And I'll tell you, because of what God has done, we can live by his grace in every practical, fundamental area of our life. God's grace always works for you when you work by faith in God's grace. That's the reality of the gospel at work in you. God's invitation in Malachi 3.10, you knew I was going to get there, didn't you? But listen, I don't need Malachi 3.10 except to, to beckon back to it and say, don't dismiss it just because it's in the Old Testament. Doesn't mean it's not valuable for us. You know why God tells the, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, test me in this and see if I won't pour out more in your barns than you could imagine and I'll give you life so you can enjoy it. Because we can fill the barns and build new barns and fill those by ourselves, can't we? We know a story about a man who did that. What we can't do is control our life that got demanded from that man that very night and he didn't get to enjoy one day of his riches. But when God gives you your riches and he blesses you with them, the days with which you get to enjoy them and the ways in which you get to bless others through them are countless. And they do not bring condemnation. They multiply joy. So when he tests 
or cause the people to test him and to watch him prove himself faithful in the Old Testament. You say, why is it that God would issue a test in the Old Testament, but only a promise in the New? Because God has proven himself for all things in Jesus. The New Testament proves that there's no longer any question about God's willingness, about his ability, or about his want to give us all things for eternal life. I've said this many times, and there's no area of life where it's more true or necessary for us. God's promises to us are more sure, are more real, and more certain than any other reality in this world. The question is, will we trust his promise? That's why he gave us a promise in the New Testament, friends. Last week, I talked about considering the value of tithing with some statistics. 77% of tithers give 11 to 20% or more of their income, far more than 10%. 97% of Christians who tithe make it a top financial priority to give to their local church. Seven out of 10 tithe on their gross income, not just their net income, because they want to know the gross blessing of God, not just the net blessing of God. Lighten up. They're more likely to practice tithing as adults when they start in their 20s or their early, excuse me, in their early teens or early 20s. That's another reason because some of you didn't, uh, you weren't raised by parents who instilled this practice in you. And I understand we're fighting for a generation to teach them things they didn't learn in home. But in following Jesus now, how do I do this? How do I do this? People who tithe regularly typically have less debt than other demographics. Eight over 80% have zero credit card debt. 28% are completely debt-free, including no mortgage. Let me just give you a personal testimony. So I'm a fourth generation in my family. My great-grandparents spoke to me of the value of tithing for their life. My grandparents instilled on both sides, instilled to me the value of the tithe to honor God. Christ in their life. My parents taught me the implications of that. As a matter of fact, just about a month and a half ago, sitting on our back deck, we had a conversation about the value of tithe for our life. It's something that brings joy to our life, not because it's easy, but because it's rewarding. Kristen and I have practiced it all throughout our marriage. We've instilled it into our children to show them how it is that you learn to tithe. Three little jars. When you get money, you give that first 10% to God. You put that second 10% aside for savings. And what goes in the middle jar, you get to do what you want to do with it. As long as mom and daddy says you can do that. (laughs) There ain't no democracy in our house. And if you want to take out of this and you want to give more to God, so be it. You do that. Tithing is effective because it works when you work it by faith. Jeff Rose, a certified financial planner and author, said once he had a client in debt and who was behind on their retirement planning. So in debt, behind on retirement planning. Do you know that 80% of the people in this nation that are within 10 years of retirement have zilcho dollars, not a dime to their name for retirement? Not a dime. That's just a statistic that stunned me. They're behind on the retirement planning, but she was still determined to tie the full 10%. He suggested to her that she contribute less while she got out of debt, but, but, but then after she got out of debt, she could increase it again, and she actually resisted. 
Here's what he said. Four years later, she was completely out of debt, had paid off over 20,000 worth of debt, got her retirement back on track for where she needed to be. And she did so by staying committed to her budget. And I quote, cutting the crap she didn't need and being laser focused. You see, friends, that's what tithing does. Tithing helps us stay focused on the one who is Lord over us. Tithing is not a law for Christians because if it were, you would only be fulfilling an obligation by doing it. But God doesn't want you to love him out of obligation. God wants you to love him out of a personal relationship. My wife doesn't want me just buying stuff for her for her birthday or for Christmas that, that she needs. I mean, try buying a garbage disposal for your anniversary. She wants me to give her something that represents our relationship. Shocker, surprise her, whatever it is. God wants you to give out of the overflowing love that he's putting in your heart and life. When you practice tithing as a foundation and as a starting point for giving, God blesses in ways that are far beyond any economic transfer or transaction could measure. That's why he gives us a promise. You see, God's provision comes in many ways. Sometimes he grants to us the ability to provide new. I can tell you story after story about how God, at different times, both personally in our life, but also in the planting of this church, when checks just came in the mail from people, this is totally legit, I had no idea who they were. And the amount on those checks still exceeds the overall amount in ways that just blew me away. I That's happened personally for us. It's happened pastorally in my position here at the church. His provision comes in so many ways in the way that he gives things to us. Sometimes, sometimes he provides by just maintaining the old, right? He tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy, you've wandered in this desert for almost 40 years and the sandals you have on your feet today are the same ones you started with 40 years ago, right? I mean, on Father's Day, We ought to get this, right? Some of you guys are hanging on to shorts and underwear you should have thrown away a long time ago, but your argument to your wife is still this. Hey, these are still good. They're still good. Ain't nothing wrong with these. Wives, it's okay to throw them away. When we rightly honor Jesus with our money, listen, friends, God is able, God is willing, God is wanting God is waiting to pour out his grace in your life. To bless you, as his promise says, in all ways, at all times. The question is just simple. Will you trust him? All giving is a war for the heart, not the pocketbook. When you tithe, you're not just giving your money, you're tethering your heart to stay close to Jesus. I'll say it one last time. Christians are never commanded to tithe in the New Testament. That is true. But you're also not commanded to read your Bible daily. You're not commanded to pray daily either. It says pray without ceasing. Pray at all times and all things. But If you want to argue the point, you're not not told that you have to read your Bible every day and you have to pray every day. But that's the kind of argument we make when it comes to money. 
You see, friends, tithing is important. Tithing is valuable. Tithing is beneficial, not as the culmination of, but as the foundation for Christian giving and keeping our lives, specifically our money, where it ought to be serving the one who is really our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. 